Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, in today's show, I had the pleasure of having Keaton Kirkwood from KB Mortgage Group back on the show. Keaton was also on episode 14. My original plan for this show was to do a deep dive into the Smith Maneuver, but we ended up spending most of our time discussing the CMHC Mortgage Product MLI Select, Plus, we talked about the federal government's plan fines for not filing your UHT returns. That's the underutilized housing tax filing requirements. So please talk to your accountant about your UHT filing if you haven't already. Plan to have Keaton back on the show sometime soon so we can go over the Smith Maneuver in more detail. I think you'll enjoy the show. Hey, Keaton, I just want to welcome you back to the Calgary Estate Investing Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. I can't complain. Spring is here, so the three and a half feet of snow is disappearing, and uh, we're starting to see green in the grass. So it's almost gone. Yeah, we're Ready? we're losing most of our snow now. So the snow mountain from uh, clearing the driveway is slowly disappearing. Sweet, that's awesome. And for any listeners that maybe haven't heard you on the show before, can you kind of just tell our listeners about yourself, your background, and what you're up to right now? Sure. So um, I'm an Alberta-based mortgage broker. Uh, We're licensed in BC and Alberta, getting our license in Saskatchewan and then Manitoba and Ontario. I own my own brokerage with my business partner, Scott Brennan. Like what makes us different is our specialization in working with real estate investors in the Smith Maneuver, but happy to work with all clients. And um, I'm a real estate investor myself. I was one of the first Smith Maneuver certified brokers. I've worked with dozens of major investing groups and I've been in the industry for about eight years. And at the end of the day, I'm just a mortgage broker. A very intelligent one at that, for sure. And people will recognize that if you listen to the other show. What's keeping you busy these days? The market's picking up, man. It is getting busy. Running a book club on the Smith Maneuver right now, which is uh, eating up a little bit extra time and really just dealing with this market that's ramping up. A lot of clients are realizing that rates were high, the market was slow, values in some areas dropped. And now that rates have kind of stabilized or dropped a little bit, all that pent-up demand is ready to go. It's almost like the markets were in the racing blocks and the gun's gone off and everybody's in a sprint. So we're watching a lot of clients that were waiting for things to drop a little more, realizing that, uh uh-oh, I'm never going to hit those numbers I wanted. And they're watching things start to go out of their grasp. So some are moving really quickly. And I think some are watching the train go by, realizing they're not going to catch it. So been frantic in a good way. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And you work with people, like you were saying, in different provinces. Is this more of an Alberta thing that you're seeing with your clients or is it other markets as well? It's everywhere. There is a shortage of housing supply across Canada. It doesn't matter if it's in the interior of BC, it's in small town Alberta, if it's in the prairies, the Maritimes, East Coast, there is a gap between the growing population of Canada and the amount of housing there is. It's getting worse and worse. And the proof of this, or the easiest way to see it is rents. We are seeing rents go up everywhere. There is no conversation really whatsoever that rents will drop. So people like to pick on real estate values and say that it's expensive and it's overpriced and it has to drop. But if you don't own, you rent. Everybody has to live somewhere. And seeing this steady march of rents going up and up and up, vacancy is dropping in most markets very quickly. It's happening everywhere. And I think it's only going to get worse. And we're seeing more and more government changes to try to combat this, like the MLI Select to build multifamily. BC just announced today that they're going to allow basement suites in basically every home in BC. They're going to do broad swaths of zoning changes to allow three and four plexes. 
that's just BC, but I think we're going to see this everywhere. So it's interesting. I didn't know what the BC uh, basement suite change that was just announced. It's basement suites, faster zoning process. They're doing a pilot program where they'll forgive up to $40,000 of your renovation costs. They'll give you a loan and over five years. And if you meet certain metrics, they'll give you 40 grand free money to suite your home. They're going to allow three and fourplex zoning on tons of different areas. So this is all announced. It's going to roll out over the next six to 12 months, I guess. And politicians being politicians, I'm sure not everything will be what they say. But the BC Premier seems like they're pretty serious about trying to fix the supply and demand. And I think this is kind of like throwing sticks in a river, trying to build a dam. It's not going to solve it, but it may reduce the impact. But ultimately, I think in Alberta, we're going to see more and more people escaping BC and Ontario. We've already got data that shows it's happening at record levels. And I don't see it stopping anytime soon because people can't afford to live in BC and Ontario. At least the average person can't. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting Yeah, because Ontario had an announcement not too long ago, I think, and they were doing like a triplex and stuff. They're basically opening up the gates for developers and kind of silencing the NIMBYs, right? Anybody that was like not in my backyard, people, they're basically closing the door and they're allowing, you know, densification. Yes. Alberta, I think Alberta will certainly follow suit as well. I'm sure the Alberta government will announce something soon, be my guess. Well, the nice thing about Alberta, though, is that it's probably the largest province that has an abundance of land and ability to grow from a population perspective. Like naturally, Alberta is a bigger economy, bigger population than Saskatchewan and Manitoba. The Maritimes have lower costs, but they're starting to hit these issues as well where they can't expand indefinitely. Whereas really like the day that Alberta runs out of land to build homes and housing is <laughs> something really weird has happened in Canada at that point. So one of the reasons that I've always loved the Edmonton and Calgary markets is that to a degree, there's a built-in supply and demand. Like our housing situation in Alberta operates on supply and demand. Whereas in the other provinces, there's always a super constrained supply and then the demand ebbs and flows. But we're seeing that get to the point where demand is no longer about you want to live in a nice house in a specific neighborhood, but rather you need to live in any house. And we're seeing 20 to 30 people competing over a rental unit. Only one of them gets, and then that demand just keeps moving forward. We're actually starting to see it in Alberta. I keep hearing stories in Sherwood Park as an example of 20 to 30 applicants fighting over townhouses as an example. We're seeing rents start to rise. Like Alberta yeah. was cheap relative to the rest of Canada, but it seems like that is disappearing relatively quickly. Yeah, and I've helped clients, you know, sell a house and they have a life change and they, now they need to become a renter and, uh, you know, help them find a rental property. It's difficult. And people, in a way, are trying to out bid each other. Some of the people are offering six months rent up front, uh, 12 months rent up front. You know, here's basically, you know, the entire year paid for up front. Please select me as your renter kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's good for Alberta in the short term, but I think it's concerning that there's a larger issue Canada-wide. And the good news is it looks like we're starting to see major changes at the government level, provincially and federally, to try to start combating this. But What's good for Alberta in the short term might not be good for the Albertan in the long term, in the sense that, you know, nobody wants to see rents double and housing prices double. If you own, it's great. But at the end of the day, it's good in moderation. And too much of it's a terrible thing, as we've seen in BC. You know, you, some people win the real estate lottery and a lot of other people realize they'll never buy. Yeah, for sure. You know, I find interesting your analogy about the sticks in the river for a dam. And then on the other side of that, so the Alberta government is trying to, you know, create affordable housing living, but yet 
on the other side, the current is getting stronger because a million people, there over a million people immigrated to Canada last year. So our population went up by about 3%, right? So a million people, and if that happens again in 2023, so another 3%, like where's everybody gonna live? Like, I mean- There was actually a Scotia article by Scotiabank really roasting the government for saying that, you know, immigration is great and it solves a lot of problems, but it needs to be done in the right way and it's not happening. And that a lot of new immigrants are coming over and there's no housing set up for them. There's no systems in place to try to help them transition properly. You know, if someone's an architect in Iran and they come here, there are nothing here. It's interesting to see. I personally hope that the government realizes this and not necessarily dials back immigration per se, but figures out a better way to bring people over here and realize that there needs to be homes for people to live in. Like, but I definitely see a huge opportunity in um, Alberta, particularly to get into the market while it's still relatively affordable. We look at values have relatively sat flat for the last 20 years, you know, forget inflation during COVID years, you know, when it was been crazy and it's on everyone's mind, there's been a steady two and a half to 4% inflation every single year, the last 20 plus years, yet housing prices have stayed flat. And I actually just had to redo the insurance on my two rental properties I realize that the market value is about 20, 25% below the cost to rebuild these properties, even though one of them is built in 2018 and the other one is fully to the studs renovated. These properties would cost us way more than market value to rebuild today. So I think there's an opportunity where we're going to see values rise just due to the cost to replace and the increasing demand. And I think people that buy homes or investment properties now will probably do well, at least in Alberta long term, because this problem is getting way worse before it gets better. And it's yep. going to be a Canada-wide thing. For sure. And for major cities, Canadian cities, Edmonton is the most affordable when it comes to your property, you know, your cost, your benchmark price, and also for rental. So if I was new to Canada and looking for a place to move and, and that was more affordable, still a large city, and also, you know, rents were still reasonably affordable, I would go to Edmonton over Calgary. That's why I moved from Vancouver to Edmonton at last May was I realized that I could probably retire 20 years faster. <laughs> it was in Vancouver, retirement may never be a thing. And I'd have to worry about my kids, you know, are they ever going to move out? Are they going to be able to establish themselves? Moving out here, like costs are substantially lower. We're able to get ahead. I'm not so worried about my kids. I'm seeing a lot of my family start to follow now because whether it's by choice or necessity, a lot of people are realizing that People in BC with rent controls are stranded on an island. Their rents were set 12, 13, 15 years ago. Sooner or later, that house needs to be renovated, torn down, sold. The owner wants to live in it, has a flood, whatever it may be. All of a sudden, their $1,400 of rent, which felt expensive, is now $3,200 to rent mm. the same thing. And at that point, it's not as simple as, oh, go five blocks east. <laughs> you can go to Radium or Fairmont or you know some small town in BC and the rent's still insane. So you're pushed into either Prince George or completely out of the province. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think we're going to see more and more of this. And for yeah. better or worse, Alberta is going to be the recipient to a lot of those people moving. For sure. And it, you know, it's, if you're a landlord in Ontario, you probably throw a party whenever your tenant says, hey, actually, I'm going to end my lease and I'm going to move out because you can finally increase the rents to market rents, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to whatever the government's limited you to each year. We're also seeing people, though, that are at the point where they realize they're basically going to die in the property they rent. They hate it. It's awful. You know, like the place we rented was moldy and had no insulation. It, believe it or not, it costs more to heat our three-bedroom rental in Vancouver in Ladner than it does to rent our bigger house with a basement in Alberta by like a three-to-one factor. So Crazy. It's, 
And you're right. Crazy how people get trapped. On the flip side, if you're a renter and you're feeling stuck and trapped, because you know, if you do in your lease, you've got to go find somewhere else. And maybe the, you know, the quality of the unit and maybe the maintenance isn't being done. So you could also be going through that, right, as a renter. Yeah, it's interesting, but definitely glad I made the move. I'm glad to be out here. For sure. And don't, then, so, don't tell this to the other provinces, but I think the people are friendlier. I blame it on less financial stress. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We don't have HST. That's something to smile about every day. Yeah, not even PST out here. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then so just to circle back, you had mentioned MLI Select. Can you just for our listeners kind of explain what that is and how that's different than maybe other mortgage products? Sure. So commercial financing breaks into two worlds. There is conventional commercial financing, which caps at a 25-year amortization for multifamily at least, so five plus units. And then there is insured commercial. Insured breaks into two categories. There is CMHC, kind of the standard insured product, which is a 40-year amortization. Typically speaking, you're looking at probably 15 to 20% down in the real world for a property that is running well. And then there's this new program called MLI Select. And this is like the 40-year amortization CMHC program on steroids. It goes to a 50-year amortization, Theoretically, in the real world, you can get away with about 10 to 13% down with a really good property that's performing well, but it does two things. It has a construction aspect to build environmentally friendly and affordable multifamily. And then there is a existing rental program that is also about environmentally friendly. So you have to meet certain environmental standards. It's a point system to 100 points. The more points you have, the less collateral you have to put in, the higher loan to value the longer amortization. And the MLI Select program is one of the federal government's changes through CMHC to try to encourage developers to start building, I forget the exact rules, we'll call it about 80% of the median income. They have a calculation for what they consider affordable rents in certain areas. The secret is a lot of these calculations are higher than market rents. So you can often score 100 points in certain areas, like Edmonton is an example, You have to meet certain environmental standards, whatever. We're building a multifamily building. We want the cost to be low because we get a 20 times multiplier on those cost savings through the net operating income and the way cap rates work. But the exciting part is that we can build properties that, you know, let's just say hypothetically, the calculation says that a two bedroom has to be rented for 1900 to meet this guidelines. I'm just making up numbers, but often we'll see market rents for 1750. So you're literally just, building normal multifamily housing, renting it at market rates like you would, and you're affordable because the rents in Edmonton, at least up to this point, are, and Calgary is the same to a degree, are relatively affordable compared to the income. Now, that's super interesting because for sure, now, if you were in a different market like the GTA, let's say, use your example, 1900 for a two-bedroom, well, that's super affordable. So that's interesting. Yeah, if you just make a blanket requirement or you know price, it can work quite well in other markets. Yeah, it's based on, so it's not two bedrooms will rent for this, but rather it's a percentage of the median income in the area. But in Alberta, one of the Mm. things that we've seen realtors and people that are pro-Alberta brag about for years and years and years is that incomes are very high relative to the cost of housing here. So it's created this opportunity that's pretty awesome. Wow, that is awesome. And so how often do you see investors taking advantage of this? More and more because the federal government is clubbing residential lending over the head. So in 2008, we had the banking crisis and something called Basel was implemented. This was like a set of international accords to make the banking system stronger. Uh, I have no idea what Basel 1 was because it was before my time. But Basel 2, the big thing that we all know was the stress test. That was a part of the Basel 
two guidelines that were 2016 to 2018. Basel three is begun rolling out as of January 1st, 2023. So it's still being kind of lobbied back and forth between the major banks and the government. But in the next three months, we're likely to see pretty substantial changes in the residential lending world. This is where we're seeing talks of loan to income requirements and different metrics to hinder the banks, essentially. Now, this may be in the form of banks can't do it, or what I think will more likely happen is if banks want to do lending that the government or OSFI considers riskier, the banks will have to have more money in reserve, which ultimately means that these risky loans, like potentially using corporate net income, using better rental calculations, will require the banks charge higher interest rates because they have to have more money available for that loan. They can leverage less, essentially. So at the end of the day, I think we're going to see a further tightening of the residential lending rules, which is usually four units or less. And as a result, we're going to start to see more sophisticated investors and what that barrier of who is a sophisticated investor drop. And we're going to see more and more people go to the commercial world. Yeah, that's interesting. And then you see like for like, as they start to kind of make it more difficult, I guess you see like the down payment increasing or the capital that you required if you are just a, you know, trying to get to the four units? Potentially. At the end of the day, the universe revolves in the residential side around debt servicing. I think ultimately what we're going to see is people need more and more income to qualify for the same thing. The problem is I had someone reach out to me today. I have 50% down, blah, blah, blah. I've got a modest income. What do I qualify for? And the short answer is that other than a couple fringe lenders, there's no special privileges or programs for larger down payments anymore. They've all been wiped out. If you're self-employed or you have a lot of assets, yes, extra down payment can help. But if you make $60,000 a year and the bank says you need $100,000 to qualify for that mortgage, at the end of the day, extra down payment does not change anything. And it makes sense. It is the cost of the debt relative to your income. You know, Putting 60% down doesn't change the fact that if your mortgage payments are your entire income, you're not realistically going to be able to pay it. And I think part of this is to a degree, common sense. And I think part of this at the end of the day is the banks are regulated by OSFI, which is a federal body. I have to imagine they're pretty chummy with the CRA and the arguments of, well, you know, I'm a sophisticated individual. I can pay my mortgage. Don't worry about it. I don't think the CRA buys that so much. If it ain't on your tax returns, it's not helping you get a mortgage anymore. So we're just seeing the industry tighten more and more. Since 2011, it has just not stopped. Yeah, for sure. So if you're you know, an investor listening to the show, how do they qualify for an MLI select product uh, versus, you know, how do they get basically into the commercial side of lending and kind of leave the residential side? So it's important to know that commercial lending is not this magic solution that just solves all your problems, but rather you trade one set of problems, which in the residential world is the limit of properties, and it's based on your income. You trade those two challenges for in the commercial world, they care more about your experience, your net worth, and the revenue the property generates, or it's called net operating income. Net operating income essentially is if you bought the property in cash, how much profit are you going to have at the end of the year? So you take the all the operating and reoccurring expenses out, your net operating income is what you're left over with. And then that's used to decide how much debt you can get. So you're trading one set of criteria, which is income and your property count and a few other things on the residential side. You're getting rid of that. And on the commercial side, they prioritize the property above all. They look at the actual performance of the property, not what it will do or what it could do, but what it is doing 
And that's one of the things that really screws up investors is that bank lending on the commercial side, if it's half empty and you know you need to fix it and you got to fix some problems, you're almost certainly going with private lending and then you need to stabilize the property, fix the issues, and then do what's called takeout financing with a major lender. But ultimately to the question, number one priority is the revenue the property is generating or the net operating income. Secondary is typically your net worth. Third is the experience you have. And I would say along with the net operating income, the quality of the building, the remaining economic life, call it the appraisal, the breakdown of the health of the building is up there. But your income is not really on the lender's radar. They care, can the property sustain itself? All they care about your income is, you know, if you've got $500,000 of credit card debt personally, and you make 12 grand a year, a lender is going to run because that looks ridiculous and clearly something's wrong. But if you make 60,000 bucks a year, they don't really care. They're not debt servicing. They're not worried about that. They care about, do you have assets, liquidity, net worth, experience? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So is it difficult then if you're a new investor to even be looked at on a commercial loan? Or do you kind of have to do the residential route, build up a small portfolio, and then you know have that experience in order to move over to the commercial side? The short answer is no. But like I mentioned, you trade one set of problems for another. The commercial world typically takes larger net worth and larger down payments, at least up front. Very rarely are you going to buy a perfectly well-run turnkey commercial property because use Calgary as an example, maybe you're earning optimistically a five cap, which would mean that if you bought it in cash, it would take you 20 years to earn your investment back. You throw debt on it. I personally view commercial for regular people as a wealth preservation strategy rather than a wealth creation. Like, don't get me wrong, you make money in the commercial space, but it is much larger numbers we're playing with. And unless you're using really active strategies or sophisticated strategies to improve buildings performance, typically speaking, you're not making crazy returns on your investment. Now, the solution that I suggest for investors is to go the residential side, buy three to four properties. And there's two reasons for it. One is you're getting that experience check mark. You're dealing with properties, contractors, taxes, all that fun stuff. You're getting used to it. You're realizing, hey, I'm actually good at this. I like this. The second thing you're doing is if we set it up correctly with re-advancing products in your properties where you get access to the appreciation and to the equity you pay down, you now, when the lender says, hey, hey, Corey, you know, you want to buy this property? Great. You know, we need $350,000 down for this eight plex in Calgary. But we also want to see that you've got $300,000 in liquidity. Well, that's really hard for a first investor to do. Like who's got 650 grand sitting around? But if you've got four properties, you've had some appreciation, you're paying off $50,000 a year on your mortgages combined. Well, now you've got, let's say $300,000 of principal pay down over five or six years. You've got $100,000 of your own personal savings. And maybe you've got $200,000 of appreciation you've accessed. All of a sudden, hey, you're in the game. Yeah, so it's the net worth and the down payment is a major barrier to entry in the commercial world, I find. Experience less so because you can solve that with a partner or a property manager or a lot of other things, but it's difficult to come up with the amount of money you need, generally speaking. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. And then how do interest rates compare? So if you're going into a commercial loan versus a red, you know, a typical... So there's two types of commercial financing, like I mentioned. There's conventional, which is your non-insured. That's typically about 0.75 to 1.5% more expensive than residential financing. 
the commercially insured financing with CMHC is cheaper than residential financing. It's typically about 0.75 to I'd say 1.1% cheaper than residential lending. But in the commercial world, the size of the mortgage is everything. A $600,000 mortgage is a nightmare to get placed. A $63 million mortgage, you will have people fighting for your business. So how low your rate is, is often a reflection of how large the mortgage is. That's interesting. That is quite different than... I know a moderate amount about commercial lending, but it's not my expertise or focus as a broker. Like happy to help clients with it, but I am by no means a black belt in the commercial lending world. I know it because I'm interested in it personally and I'm pretty passionate about it. But professionally, I'm knowledgeable about it, but I'm by no means the best. Learning and growing. Hey, you've got a ton of experience and knowledge. So with the MLI Select, what are some things that you see people kind of bumping up against? So like maybe where they're not going to qualify for it. So there's two forks in the road. One is you build a 20 unit building. Well, that's got a pretty steep barrier to entry. That is a lot of skills to learn in a quick time if you're not an experienced developer. So for entry level commercial investors, let's just eliminate that because yes, you can do it. And I know people that have built large buildings as their first project in the commercial space, but they're generally sophisticated investors, realtors. They've got a very solid network. I would say the easier path of entry would be just buying a building. The biggest challenge that most people will face is that commercial lending lends off of what already exists. So the dilemma you're going to face is that typically speaking, there's the net operating income or the income that the property has left over after you pay for all your operating expenses. That is then divided by the cap rate, which imagine a tug of war between buyers and sellers. The cap rate is kind of the agreed upon metric that people are willing to pay for. So it's a multiplier. A five cap, a cap rate of 5% means that you will pay $20 for every dollar of net operating income. So at the end of the day, it's just a, hey, what is a Honda Civic worth today? It's worth $22,000. Cap rates are kind of like that. They're just the going metric in any market for what something's worth. Now, if you take the net operating income and you divide it by the cap rate, you get the rough value of the property. The challenge you'll have is that if you want to buy a commercial building and increase the value, you need to increase the net operating income. So often investors are drawn to crappy buildings. It's half empty. The landlords live in New Brunswick. They're absentee. They've got a 73-year-old property manager who doesn't answer a phone and still faxes applications. There's no coin laundry. It needs insulation. You know, pick the issues. The problem is that the more opportunity there is for you as an investor, the less they want to finance that thing. You know, it might be a situation where if you went to an A lender in the commercial space, they may say, great news, Corey, you're approved. We'll give you a 21% loan to value. And you're like, well, hang on a sec, guys. Like, it's a $2 million purchase. I don't have $1.6 million sitting around. And I got to put $600,000 to renovate this thing and fix the issues. So the biggest barrier to entry is that the better a deal is for an investor to fix problems, the less the banks want to touch it. So you have to go to private financing. You need to stabilize the property or fix the problems. Typically, a year after you've bought the property, you fix the issues. You'll have financials. Then you can go to these insured lenders or whatever you want, and you can go with bank financing. So that is usually a sticking point for a lot of investors because they just see 10% down and blah, 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 50-year amortization. They don't realize that that's the pot of the gold at the end of the rainbow. And they got to do a lot of hiking to get there. 
Yeah, I can see that. And obviously the way you've described it. So once you stabilize the property, you've done those rentals through private lending and have that one year of uh, history. Income. Yeah, in that operating income, then you could go and you can apply for the MLI Select and get a lower interest rate and a longer amortization. You mentioned there's a hundred point system, right? So on, on an older building, you may not be able to check all the boxes, right? For yeah. to get all the points. Do you see maybe investors trying to just go, are they doing it more for new builds? If you're going to do a brand new construction or does it also apply quite well to uh, the used market? It really depends. Once again, if you have to stabilize the property, you can do upgrades to meet those standards. So if you see a building that's got, you know, an old furnace, old water tanks, needs to be insulated, odds are these are changes you would probably be interested in making anyways, as they can cut costs. If you can lower your electricity usage, your, your utilities, you can increase your rents. These are ultimately going to increase your net operating income. So often there are situations where older buildings can actually be spruced up and the efficiency can be improved and you can try to meet these requirements. The other aspect is the affordable housing side of it. The system is very heavily weighted to if you meet these rental thresholds and you can often get 85 or 90% of the way just off of the rents. So sometimes you need to make very, very minor changes from an efficiency standpoint. Yeah, that makes sense. So to shift gears a little, it was more of an intro question I had for you, but what's some of the stuff that you're seeing maybe on your radar as a mortgage broker and you're seeing maybe your investors come across right now? I've noticed a big uptick in burrs on the residential side. So buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and then repeat. So burrs have become more popular. I've noticed a lot of flipping. I guess I'll take one step back. The biggest mistake I've seen people make is interest rates have risen and the cost of owning a property have increased. I've noticed more and more people shifting towards corporate rentals, Airbnb. There's a lot of investors that instead of just saying, you know what, this isn't the market that I'm going to invest in or things don't make sense today. I've seen investors shifting more and more to fringe strategies to justify the numbers. And I don't know if it's investing groups driving this, if it's realtors, real estate coaches, just investors wanting to invest. But I would say that's the biggest trend I've seen. And I suggest that people be very long-term with this stuff. You know, there's been repeated talks about a recession is on the other side of these rate increases. It's not super mainstream on the media right now, but there's a chance that the economy might get worse before it gets better. The last thing I want to do is if I bought six properties that are all Airbnb, and all of a sudden the Airbnb market dries up because, you know, job market shrinks 20% or whatever it may be. So that's kind of on the bad side and my caution for people. On the good side, we're seeing a lot of burrs. We're seeing more and more investors get into the construction side of value add, whether it's flipping, you know, renovating, adding value through suiting properties. And it's been relatively lucrative for a lot of investors. Yeah, and it definitely depends on what market you're in as to what strategy you're likely going to employ as well, right? So if your market's pulling back, it's definitely a challenging market to maybe do a flip in or even a burr. If your market's appreciating, then it's a different story. People in Ontario, depending on what market you're in there, some people, I think they're a little bit nervous about, you know, the, when the market pulls back 18, 20% and you are hoping to refinance and you, there's no way you can do that, right? So you're going to have to have a, a different exit strategy. No, for sure. And I think that having multiple plans or multiple exit strategies, it's a huge piece of being a successful investor. There's a transition that happens for most investors. And often investors will start out as speculators. They go do a strategy because they can make money. 
and they go do it and it either works or it doesn't. Over time, you become more and more like a business person. You become more organized. You start to weigh the pros and cons and risks. You start to operate in larger numbers, whether it is the volume of transactions or the size of them. And you start to try to focus more on minimizing and managing your risk. And I think the sooner you can make that transition, the better. And I can also argue on the financing side, if you've got four or five, six properties and you've got your documents spread out through your house and you can't find your stuff, getting a mortgage is going to be the worst experience. It's arguably not going to happen. Whereas if you treat it like a business early on and you create a filing system, you're organized, you have your stuff together, you do your taxes on time, then you're in a position where you'll, while everybody else is complaining is difficult, hey, maybe it's not easy, but you're going to get it done. You're like, well, no, it didn't take me nine weeks to get my mortgage. It took me four weeks. And we're also seeing changes. I don't know if you've talked to anyone, Corey, about the UHT or underutilized housing tax, but people who own properties in partnerships, corporate structures, there's quite a few things that meet this criteria. They've extended the deadline, but it was going to be the end of April. And as an example, let's say you and I go buy a property together personally, hoping to make money. You know, we're not a couple. We're not one household. So we're in a partnership. If we don't file that form and they've extended the deadline to October, and this will be happening year over year moving forward, it's a nine page filing that goes to Sierra each. We don't file that. The CRA, if they didn't extend it May 3rd, we'd each get essentially a $5,000 fine for not filing this underutilized housing tax form. And this is universal. This is federal, right? Yes, this is everywhere. And no one's exempt from filing if you meet their criteria, which fits most people who own multiple properties. But the problem is that the tax itself doesn't apply to you. But if you don't file the form to say you're exempt, they're going to hit you with $5,000 per owner per property on the personal side, or $10,000 per owner per property on the corporate side. So if you kind of are sloppy, and you do your taxes six months late every year, if you've got 10 properties, and let's say it's you and a partner, you might get hit with $100,000 of fines for filing your taxes three months late. It's not even tax. It's just you didn't do the bloody forms. That's, so that's, everybody seems... needs to sharpen their pencil and get organized or you're going to get screwed because the CRA is cracking down. So why such a strong fist, I guess? It seems so extreme because there's going to be a lot of people that get caught in this. 100%. There's a few different arguments. One is that the CRA said repeatedly that owning a home, so not a commercial asset, but a home, should not be an investment. And kind of the position of the Canadian government to a degree and the CRA is that home ownership's for living. It shouldn't be an investment class. The reality is that our economy and our country doesn't work that way and the world doesn't work that way, but it's the balance of keeping voters happy and making sure the country runs. So there's a certain perspective of they want to discourage investing in residential real estate, to a degree at least. There's a degree of is that opinion or it's certainly not fact. It's a degree of Is that the direction they're going? Is that just an opinion? Is it just a statement that's hollow? But at the end of the day, there's pressure to discourage investing in residential real estate because homeownership's expensive and there's high vacancy and investors are demonized. On the other side of the spectrum, though, there's a degree of the CRA and the government has spent a lot of money over the last four years. We have a relatively large debt and the government needs more money. And if the government says, hey, everybody who makes $50,000 a year or more pays an extra $5,000 in tax, that government's probably not getting reelected. It's going to piss off a lot of people. But if you look at the percentage of people that own investment real estate, call it 10% of Canadians. It's not a lot. 
And at the end of the day, if you're a multi-billionaire, you're someone who's really important financially. You don't give a shit about this thing. You're going to pay someone to do it. You're sophisticated enough. You've got an accountant probably, you know, borderline on staff for you. You don't care. The people yeah. it gets is the regular ma and pops that are kind of flying by the seat of their pants. They own a couple of properties, you know, the new investors, the JV people. And at the end of the day, it's the way for a CRA to get more money. And it's not going to piss off the majority of the voter base. You know, if next year the Liberal government can say, hey, we raised $26 million that we're putting into affordable housing, and it didn't come from you, the taxpayer, it came from sophisticated investors. The voting base isn't going to care. That's a great it's point. Just, it's a cash call, a sneaky cash call. That's a, yeah, for sure. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, that's huge value for the listeners as well. If they haven't filed, uh, get it done. You don't want to get caught with a, you know, some sort of fine like this. Like this is, it seems super excessive and unfortunate. We didn't get time to jump into the Smith Maneuver. I'm going to have to have you back on the show. We'll do it another day. But I'm just going to end the show with a couple of personal questions. So if you have a favorite book that you recently read or a movie that you watched that you'd like to share. I've been super, super caught up in the world of trying to learn new skills right now. So not so much books, but I've been just living in the YouTube space, learning to build websites and all sorts of fun stuff. But I got to say one of my favorite books, and this is cheesy, uh, Mr. Robinson and Fraser Smith, but The Smith Maneuver has been one of my favorite books just because it has really puts the concept of good debt, bad debt, of being tax efficient, of using leverage, of planning for retirement and investing sooner. And I'll paraphrase the numbers, but I'll share a quick analogy with you. If someone's considering buying a car for $100,000 and they have the option of financing it for six years at 6% interest, or they can buy the car in cash, or sorry, I should clarify, if they finance it, they can invest the $100,000 they have because they got lending on the car, you know, they financed it, they can invest the 100000 at 4%, or they can just take their money and buy it in cash and not pay the 6% interest, which choice should they go? Do they finance, pay 6% interest, keep the money and invest it at 4%, or do they just take the money and buy the thing in cash and pay no interest? And the question is, which is financially better, assuming the 4% return is guaranteed? And the short answer is the financing costs roughly $19,000 over six years. The value of the investments after six years would be about $25,000, $26,000 due to compounding. So this is a six-year window with a 2% spread where you're actually investing for less than you're paying. But long story short, the Smith Maneuver is really powerful. And the reason I like it is our system fails us. It teaches us that debt is always bad. We should pay it off. There's no real emphasis on retirement planning, how the financial system works. The Smith Maneuver kind of turns that on its head a little bit. And I think it lets Canadians level up a little bit and realize Finance isn't inherently common sense. And the super poorly worded explanation I just gave with the cars is kind of an example of how it can be counterintuitive. But I think that the system is only going to get harder and more challenging for regular people. And I really worry about my kids' future because I've got a three and a half year old and a four month old. I think by the time they're our age, I think it's going to be harder than it is for us today. And I think that the book is a really useful tool for getting people to think long-term, think ahead and start making changes that are small today, but make a huge impact 30 years from now. Yeah, that's the perfect teaser or plug for the next time you're going to be on the show. We're going to cover the Smith Maneuver in, in more detail. 2023, you got any trips planned? Anything, any vacations you guys are going to be doing? No, just uh, working on fixing up the property. So we moved to Alberta just outside Edmonton and got 10 acres and a house. And we've got... Uh, nine and a half acres that need to be bushwhacked. 
So uh, that's our forever project. So you're going to invite me up then and help out? Oh yeah, you. I, I want to see you in plaid with a chainsaw. That's going to be like we can do a calendar with that. Hey, there's nothing better than running a chainsaw for a while. It's pretty fun. It's fun. Yeah. And then uh, just last personal question: Where's somewhere you would want to travel that you've never been? India is pretty high up on my list. India. So my yeah. wife and I, we love Indian food. We had actually Indian food catered for our wedding, and uh, we've been to Thailand a couple times to backpack. But uh, India is one of those countries that we want to see and travel. Yeah, but be amazing. the reality is anywhere I haven't been, I want to go. You know, no Mexico, <laughs> no Hawaii. I'd love to go to South America, Europe, Middle East, anywhere. Africa yeah. is really high up on my wife's list. She loves animals. So nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Keaton, K E A T O N, at KB Mortgages with an S.ca or www.kbmortgages.ca. Hey, Keaton. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's always a pleasure. And we're going to have you back on. We're going to cover the Smith Maneuver on the next one. Appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at Peckford Corey, or my website is coreypeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.